Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man, a podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, songwriter and author Mark Lowry interviews Jonathan about the doctrine of the rapture and how this doctrine is only 150 years old. Enjoy. I'm sitting here in my backyard with Jonathan Martin, and we've been having a good time, haven't we? We've been having an amazing time. What did we do yesterday, had more fun. Jonathan? We rode scooters all day in Galveston. That was amazing. It was fun. I've never done that before. I thought it would be too big for a scooter, but it, it worked. Yeah, you're six. He's six five, mm-hmm. and I was worried about the scooters, but you did great. Now, uh, I met Jonathan through Reba Rambo McGuire on her Tuesday night. Um, River, the River Gathering. It's wonderful. You ought to tune in if you've never seen it. It's 6.30 Central Time every Tuesday night. And if you're wondering why I'm sweating, we're outdoors. This is Texas. But I thought, isn't this pretty? These weeds? It really is pretty. Aren't they pretty? <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, Reba had Jonathan on, and I was amazed uh, his, at his sermons and his messages. And we were talking the other day about Revelation and how I had learned that the rapture was only a 150-year-old doctrine. I thought the church fathers came up with the rapture. And and don't let this shake your faith. You can still believe in the rapture when we're done. But I want him in I want him to talk a little bit about revelation and uh maybe some things some things I've already said. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, well, you jumped right into the deep end. Yeah, I did. Didn't I? <laughs> so always. Do. I, I don't want to be like the but guest. That'll, that'll make you sure you stay tuned. That's true. I don't want to be like the guest, like like the Grinch who stole the rapture. Right. Unlike that no. on Mark's show. Well, see, I think the first clarification I would want to make, um, because I so agree with that point, I do think the idea of rapture as we know it is a very new idea. That to say that rapture per se is in the scripture is not a way of saying that scripture doesn't talk about the second coming. Right. Scripture talks all about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the, the Apostles' Creed affirms the second coming of Jesus. I'm more excited about the return of Jesus than I've ever been in all of my life. So yeah. just to put that out there. Right. But I think a lot of what we're talking about, to kind of maybe come in the long way, uh, is more in terms of how we approach Revelation more broadly. I just kind of feel like a lot of people have been taught to, to read Revelation a certain way, that they were taught by prophecy experts. We had a lot of those coming through when I was a kid, had the big charts up. And it's a, it's interesting because it's a pretty sophisticated way of, of reading that nobody would come up with on their own if they were just reading the text. And so I think what often happens, unfortunately, is that regular folks don't feel like they can understand the book of Revelation. They don't feel like it's accessible to them. Whereas it's become a big passion for me, I feel like Revelation is a book that's written for the whole church, is helpful for the whole church, no matter where we are. I feel like it's a timeless message. And I've just become really passionate about getting the book of Revelation back in people's hands in a way that, that feels much more like it connects with their with their real lives. Exactly. Well, you know, my mother... My problem with uh, the rapture uh, doctrine, number one, it's so new, 150 years old, okay? Number two uh, is that where it leads you. It it seems to me those that I have watched really delve into prophecy, they then the ultimate payoff is you got to pray for Armageddon. Yeah, because yeah, he can't right. come back without Armageddon. I believe mm-hmm. in their prophecies. You know, so it leads you. I think 
understanding Matthew is a full-time job. Now yeah. tell me why, because I'm one of those Christians that has avoided Revelation. Yes. But you said to me the other day, there are only two literal things in Revelation. Yeah, yeah. What are those? Well, the, the most, the literal figures in the book of Revelation are John himself, who, the, the writer of the book of Revelation, and there's a little bit of debate about which John that is, if it's John the Beloved, etc., but um, save that for another time. John himself, and then the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Those are, those are all very real churches that exist in John's time that he's writing to. And so I think what often happens in a dispensational context or a certain kind of fundamentalist dispensationalism is that people actually, ironically, take the only literal figures in the book, which are John and the churches, and turn them into metaphors. Because the dispensational reading is that, okay, those seven churches actually represent seven church ages. Then, uh, at, you know, at the end of that part of the letter, the beginning of Revelation 4, when Jesus says to John, come up here, John represents the church being taken up in the rapture. And, but what becomes really odd about that is that then, you know, Revelation, of course, is written in very symbolic, metaphorical terms, which is not a way of making the text less sacred or more holy. I believe it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the words are anointed, all of that. But it's written in an allegorical, metaphorical way. Unfortunately, then what happens is people take the only literal figures in the book, turn them into a metaphor, and then all the everything that comes in Revelation that clearly are metaphors tend to interpret those in a literal fashion. So it's like kind of interpreting the book of Revelation backwards. And to your point, in terms of the practical implications of this, because, you know, the last thing I care about doing at this point in my life is, you know, I don't know, having a sword fight with anybody on the book of Revelation or, or, or like being smug. It's, it's none of those kind of things. But to me, how we interpret the book does matter in real life. Because yeah. to your point, this to me is what it ultimately comes down to. There's a certain way of reading the book of Revelation the, the, in the manner in which we've been describing that I feel like leads people to just kind of want to escape the world. Whereas I feel like a biblical, healthy understanding of the second coming actually leads us to want to remake the world. That's what Christians are supposed to be about, remaking right. the world, not escaping it. And if, that's why I care about all If this. you're huddling in the corner like I saw my sweet mama do, and she's always I just waiting on the Lord to come back, you can't be salt and light right. if you're huddling in a corner. You can't be you can be a peacemaker because Jesus said you could. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers. That's right. When did we want to be warm? Why are we not peacemakers? Why why aren't we? Well, I think especially reading the book of Revelation contributes to that because Revelation uses a lot of war, militaristic kind of imagery. What I would want to contend is that Revelation uses that kind of imagery, uh, imagery of the Roman Empire and the wars and bloodshed of the Roman Empire, but then uses those images in a really subversive way. Because I want to contend that the message of the book of Revelation is actually much more simple than a lot of the prophecy experts told us that it was. Revelation is ultimately about how God conquers, the lamb overcomes through his own sacrifice. And we get that message over and over again through a series of images. I don't think they're linear, um, but we get a series of images. But the point, the through line through Revelation over and over again is that God overcomes the forces of Satan, sin, and death through the sacrifice of the lamb. It is The lamb doesn't win because he's got a bigger sword. I mean, you know, we have that verse in Revelation 19 that says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. But of course, that's a way allegorically of saying God will judge the world 
by his word. But we see consistently, you know, Revelation 19, when Jesus rides out on the white horse, he's wearing a robe that's been dipped in blood. Well, it's clearly not the blood of his enemies. It's his own blood. <laughs> I mean, that's the beauty of the book of Revelation. John hears a voice that says, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah. But he turns and looks and he sees a lamb standing slain. That's the idea is that this lion-like strength of God has actually been displayed through the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, not the weapons of the world yes. that will ultimately overcome the forces of war and death. Which matches the message of Jesus better than yes. the message of the prophecy people who, first of all, don't know any more than you do. That's right. Okay? That's right. And that kind of stuff raises money. Totally. So beware, okay? Uh, but the the rapture uh, thing, when Mama, I'd see her huddling like that, I'd think, gosh, that is not the way God intended. And, and I love the point you made, Mark, because I feel like it's actually the most profound one. And maybe, maybe the reason ultimately I care about this so much is that I feel like we have to have a view of the New Testament that is cohesive on some level. And I want to say that the Gospels and the Epistles and the Book of Revelation all want to all want to tell us the same thing and tell the same story. It used to feel like for me, Revelation felt like this pin the tail on the donkey kind yes. of ending. Like, like an ending from a whole other story yeah. was imposed in this. What I want to say is that Revelation tells us the same story the Gospels are telling us, the same story Paul and the other writers want to tell us, but it's doing it from an aerial point of view. It's giving a different perspective on the exact same story, but it doesn't fundamentally change the story. You know, if you, if you didn't have the book of Revelation, and I'm so thankful that we do, you know, you would still be left with the same, with the same story because even John wants to say, Jesus is conquering like Paul wants to say, through his cross. And it's through the cross and resurrection of Jesus that God wins. That's the message of the book of Revelation yeah. to me. Yeah. And I, I, I know, something I know that I had and said that might be important because I don't think I connected the dots yet in terms of revelation and rapture and where all that comes from. So, you know, there, I made the passing reference to when Jesus says to John, come up here and people interpret that to be a rapture. What they do is they put that together with a reference in Thessalonians, very famous reference, and actually a passage, once again, I love now more than I think I ever have, where, you know, we have the image, you know, the trump of God will sound yeah. and the dead are caught up with Christ to meet him in the air, then those that remain, all that. Well, I love that image and it's a beautiful image. But I think what's happened is we've read First Thessalonians out of context. When you study that image, uh, especially in, in the Greek idiom in which Paul is using, it's a very particular reference. In Paul's time, when a Roman hero would come back from war after they'd conquered some other nation or tribe or whatever, then the, the, the people of the town would go and meet that king at the gates of the city when he came back in. And what they would do is they would usher the king or that hero back in in a parade for a kind of processional. So then the person who's coming back from war comes in on their horse, the people are with them, it's a great, it's a great celebration, it's a start of a parade. But we interpreted that image in a really literal way to say, okay, this means that we're being taken up off the earth to go be with Jesus somewhere else. Whereas actually the prayer that Christians have been praying for 2000 years, because this is the prayer that Jesus gave us to pray is that kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The biblical story that culminates with the second coming is about how the king and kingdom are coming down. That image that we, that was taken to, to become this whole thing of rapture was really all about how we go to meet the king to then escort the king back in 
to rule and reign on the earth. That's what Paul's getting at in Thessalonians. But you, you can see how putting that reference together with that one verse in Revelation, for a lot of people has become an entire doctrine. I don't know if this is too controversial to say or not, feel free to edit later, but to me it's not unlike, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses built a whole empire, a whole church off of this whole question of who are the 144,000 in the book of Revelation. You take like two passages and you build it into a whole doctrine whole that then changes the trajectories religion. of people's lives, you know. Yeah. And you said also something interesting the other day to me about the kings. Are, are, are cast into hell. Oh, yeah. And then they're seen going into the city. What's that? Where's that? Yeah, so starting around Revelation 12 and 13, you have this kind of ramping up for a, for a war, the climactic battle. And that battle is between the Lamb and the forces that oppose the Lamb. John consistently uses the same language to describe the bad guys in the book of Revelation, especially, again, from Revelation 12 following. And that language that he uses is the nations and the kings of the earth. And so like a mantra throughout the last half of Revelation, you keep hearing the nations of the kings of the earth, the nations of the kings of the earth. They're all making war against the Lamb, you know, just wreaking all kinds of havoc. Now, when we get to Revelation 19, uh, it says that the nations and the kings of the earth are thrown into the lake of fire, which would seem to be the end of the story. But then in Revelation 21, when the New Jerusalem comes down, uh, the city of God, we'll keep note that again, the New Jerusalem comes down. Yeah, <laughs> we the don't go the, up, it comes right. down. The movement is, that will change your whole theology right now, right there, is if it goes from about us going up to Jesus coming down. Yeah. But Revelation 21, when the new city comes down, and the idea is now that there's no separation between the new heavens and the new earth. This is the day Isaiah prophesied that the time will come on the earth, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. And when it gives us this beautiful image, it says two things that are interesting. One, it says that the gates of that city are never shut, which I find that to be really provocative. Like, why is it that the gates are never shut? But then secondly, it describes the people who are coming in and entering the city. And it specifically says that the nations and the kings of the earth are then coming in to worship the Lamb. Now, you know, when I first saw that, I mean, it just, it just blew my mind because I'm saying, first of all, aren't these the folks that were just thrown in the lake of fire in Revelation 19? So that's provocative enough in right. and of itself. But I think beyond all that, you know, and then I, the first place I wanted to go in my mind, well, but these are the saved nations and kings of the earth. But, you know, keep in mind that thus far in the book of Revelation, nations and kings of the earth have only meant one thing, and that's these are the bad guys who oppose the Lamb. So I just think it's a very provocative image of the mercy of God, that even in Revelation, at what seems like it would be the definitive end of the story, there's no hope, there's no way out, still it seems to at least gesture, at least gesture at this possibility that there's, that somehow, that there still might be some way of saying yes to Jesus. The gates are still open. How are these people entering in? And again, I'm not trying to hang a whole doctrine on that. I just think because this is the broader no, point. No, we got to make sure somebody goes to hell. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And it's clearly not us. It's yeah. the other guy. Right. The other guy goes to hell. What if Jesus, <laughs> you know, I know this is heresy and I don't believe this, but you know, what if Jesus ends up saving the world? Like he said, he, you know, he said, I'll make all things new. Yes, yes, Y'all, yes. it's just us talking here. I don't believe this. <laughs> I'm just talking out loud and you're hearing me. Yeah. But what if God did that? I mean, would you be opposed? I, I certainly wouldn't be opposed. And while I do not think that scripture in any way clearly teaches that all will be saved in the end. So I don't say no, that I don't because either. I don't feel authorized to say that. I also think scripture gives us real reason to 
hope for that and to pray for that. I mean, if every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, do we really think that the way that God would do that would be through the way of Caesar? Like that's going to put a, he's going to be putting a sword to everybody's throat to get them to bow? Like what I've always Maybe. thought about that image is that right <laughs> is that the the beauty of God would be so compelling that when people really see Christ yes. in all his glory that he's irresistible in that way. So I, agree I do that. hope for the salvation of all. I do pray for the salvation of all. But don't count on it. <laughs> Make well, sure you know Jesus before you leave here. Well, that, I, I Because I've always thought that. if that does play out that way and that's up yeah. to God, I'm not God. The good thing about being a recovering fundamentalist is you don't have to be God anymore. That's right. You don't have to know it all that's anymore. Right. But uh, if God chooses to do that, I would be I mean, who wouldn't be through? Who wouldn't be through? And, and, and to me, the broader point is that, especially in Revelation, but other places too, there's so much more mercy in these texts than we've acknowledged. There's, there's more hope and more beauty than we've acknowledged. Whereas I feel like that other version of the story, unfortunately, focus, focuses almost exclusively on judgment in, in, in kind of a negative way. And, and judgment for me, by the way, is it a negative word. Judgment is about God making things right in a world where there's so much injustice and oppression. Yeah. It's going to take the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords himself to make things right. And, but if you make it all into we can't wait for God to vindicate us over against our enemies and for us to be proven right and for them to suffer, that's not the, the message of the book of Revelation. Folks, I mean, just just think through this, pray through this intuitively. Yeah. The, the ultimate image of God in the New Testament is Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How is it possible that the main emphasis that the rest of this story in the end is that that Jesus comes back like Dirty Harry, punishes all the bad Which guys and we're exactly proven right? why Martin Luther didn't want this in the canon, I yep. heard. Yeah, that, that is true. Luther and others felt like Revelation w w gave too much like stumbling block for but people why didn't to not they be able to understand it? it. I mean, did they not understand that this is, I mean, when I when you say, and I'm going to check you out too, don't believe anything he says. Check him out. <laughs> That's right. You know, I, I've only known him a few weeks. This could all be heresy, y'all. Check it out. When you stand before God, you're not going to say, hey, Jonathan, come here and explain why I thought this. This is true. Google it. Check it out. John Darby, Google the name. Yeah. He came up with the rapture 150 years ago. It blew my mind and it almost destroyed me when I figured this out because yes. the rapture had become a cornerstone in my theology. Let me explain something to you. Have no cornerstone but Jesus. That's right. That's that right. he rose from the dead. Have no other cornerstone, rapture, anything else. Yes. Now I do believe, like we want to reiterate, we believe in the second coming of Christ just like all the church fathers have for since the beginning of the church. Absolutely. But they haven't all believed there's the rap word rapture is not even in the Bible. That's so right. I'm not saying it isn't gonna happen. I'm just saying don't count on it. That's right. And be salt and light while you're here in this moment and pretend he's never coming back in your lifetime. And if he does, won't that be good? He is coming back. That's right. My, my, After that plane passes. That's right. <laughs> he may be on his way right now. Um, that because that that's that's my concern. It's like look, people can think anything they want about the end of the world, in times. There's a lot of room, and I would I would want to be clear. I would never de-Christianize somebody for thinking something differently from what Bill I think. Bill and Gloria go to a church that doesn't believe in the rapture. The Church yeah. of God Anderson doesn't believe in the rapture. Look, look at the lyrics of the King is Coming. It's all, all about right. the second coming. It's not about the rapture. That's
That's right. That's why they went through heck with the people who believe in the rapture. Mm. But their churches never believed in it. It is not a deal breaker, people. Mm. Don't let this shake your faith. Hopefully it won't. It's going to be sad if some of the folks now are like, oh, well, got to stop listening to Bill and Gloria songs. <laughs> well, oh, I hate that one, Bill and Gloria. <laughs> no, but you're so right. I just think like it's fine to disagree. It's fine to hold different ideas about this. But I think you've said it so beautifully already. The whole emphasis is we want people. It's how we live in the world. And my concern pastorally is that I feel like bad ideas about the book of Revelation end up causing people to live off mission. That's the issue. And we want people to be on mission, which means not only do we care about introducing people to saving faith with Jesus, and we do care about that, but we do care about making peace, and we do care about uh, the world, and we do care about uh, being salt and light, because we believe that God has redemptive purposes for the world. Romans 8, Paul says that the creation itself is groaning and sighing for the manifestation of the sons of God for the for the redemption that's yet to come. Why would the earth itself be groaning for the king to come back if that was bad news? Right. If it's all about hellfire and brimstone and judgment, then why is creation groaning for this redemption that's coming? I mean, this sounds so simple, but to me this, is, this has been a profound shift. At this point in my life now, I really believe that the fact that Jesus is coming is good news. Yeah. It's a thing to be looked forward to and anticipate not a terror. I mean, I spent half my life just, I mean, in, in just cowering in fear, having panic attacks, and even at school and all that, scared to death that Jesus was going to come back. Well, that's the way it affected you. The way it affected my mom and some I've known is do nothing, stay in the corner, right. think the wor world's awful, and would Jesus please come back? I got up many times during the night when I was a kid, got on my knees and prayed, Lord, I want to make sure I'm saved before I sure. go to sleep because sure. I don't want to miss it. Now, do you you still believe it? I mean, I do, and I'm sure you do. Now, the bodily resurrection, will that happen when Christ returns? Yeah, see, this is another one of those funny, like, tweaks is that the bodily resurrection, like, I believe in that also more strongly than I ever have. It's one of the central controversies of the early church. It's part of why people made such fun of Christians is that in a world where everybody's mostly into some version of Gnosticism, you know, the body is bad, but the soul or spirit is good. Christians insisted on a bodily resurrection. That's why the early Romans, as a way of tormenting Christians, like of making fun of their faith and trying to belittle them, would, would do terrible things and ultimately burn the bodies of their dead to mock their belief in a, in a bodily resurrection. I do believe in a bodily resurrection, and part of why I think that's so important, once again, continuity, think about the big picture in the story. Man, the very idea that this body and all its weakness and frailty has a part to play in the world to come, our very bodies are the raw materials, like everything we're looking at around right here, right now, uh, this earth, it's because the idea is not that God kind of like drop kicks creation and starts over. He's going to make it new in the same way that a person when they first come to Christ, right, w would describe it's like, I'm me, but I'm a whole different me. I mean, you still got the same body. You may even have the same personality, but there's it's also like a whole new you. That's what God is going to do to the whole cosmos. He's going to take those same raw materials and transform them so that all are made new. That means nothing's wasted, nothing about our lives. The, these bodies will be resurrected. How much, What kind of implications does that have to how we care for the real bodies of people around us right here, right now in the world? Well, I still want a new body because I want my nose to come to a point. I've always wanted a nose that came to a point. I think the Lord can still grant that. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. This has been wonderful. We're going to go eat breakfast. 
Thank you for listening today. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Instagram. To support this podcast and become a patron, go to patreon.com slash man. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast can be a resource to help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.